Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. Sorry about the length of this episode, I am definitely going to be recording a bigger one in the future, because this episode and the next one's going to be a bit weird. This one, because, well, um, a really stupid thing happened to me. You see, there was this sewer thing, and the sewer lid that I normally walk over, well, it's close to the crossing near my home and the city of Lodza, well, town of Lutza, but uh, this crossing has a lid over it, and the lid wasn't closed properly. So, as I was juggling my nice little Stalin documentaries and everything, I stepped onto this lid a couple of days ago, and I managed to fall in with one leg and damage it really bad, and can't properly think, really. You know, nothing's broken. And I'm thankful for that, but it does not feel nice at all. So I'm thinking about doing a bit lighthearted episode this time, and I still want to do a bit better interesting episode later, up until the end of the month, but that's gonna be um, a nice little reading for you from a Russian book that I'm not gonna reveal just yet, but it's important, it's just... It's going to come out uh, mostly unedited because it's going to be done by just using my own very limited editing skills because Anete, our beautiful and talented editor, is going away for a camp for the next week. So I can't really um, expect her to do any work then. So this and the next episode are going to be slightly weird, but we're preparing because in this episode I want to talk to you about... Oh, no, it really hurts. I'm sorry, guys. In this episode, I want to talk to you about the books that I've acquired and that people have sent me and that um, people have given me personally and about answering some of your uh, listener questions and just explain a bit what we're going through to make everything more interesting. A lot of troubles lately, but we're, we're on to this. We're focused and this year's, this year's about to have a really good, good start and everything's going to go smoothly. Well, I'm just not very, very capable of thinking about the political problems 
or super in-depth history right now because my head's all just fuzzy from the painkillers. But uh, this is the case where I pull up things that I honestly want to talk to you about, which just don't go into other shows. And number one book that I want to share with you is a book that was given to me by uh, Laffy Weekly podcast. I was in an interview on their show. I posted that on Twitter and on Facebook. But I think if you're not following me there, then you should really check out those guys. It's by Joe. It's by an American person who's from Maine originally and who's moved to Latvia. And he works in the University of Agriculture, I think, and in, in some other universities. And he's teaching people business English. And he's also teaching some people how to make podcasts here in Latvia. And he you now lives in Jalgava, one of the larger cities here. A really friendly guy. Well, I know he has one kid, and he's readily awaiting the second one. And, uh, yeah, I was on his show, and we did an interview about, like, my show, and how I view the political situation, and what's going on. And he gave me a book that we together want to make an episode later on, because he's very interested in the subject, too. And I would be honored to do that, but I have to go through this. And it's a civil defense book. It's called Civil Defense, A Soviet View by P.T. Yegorov, I.A. Shlyakhlov, and N.I. Alabin. And as far as I get it, this book is basically a CIA translation in English of the Soviet defense books. University Press of the Pacific Honolulu, Hawaii, translated and published under the auspices of the United States Air Force in 1970. And it's a kind of a huge book about civil defense as it was taught in Soviet universities. I find it to be a course book. I haven't, I've just skimmed over it. I haven't read it completely. But it's a full English translation by the Air Force. And I, I think he told me the CIA were involved in this. Well, basically, this is a book about English translation of the Soviet civil defense book, which really makes my job easier because, you know, normally I have to read all these books in in Russian or in Latvian, and then I have to translate them. But this book is excellent. It involves all sorts of formulas, and I, I teased people by uh, the formula of acceleration on Twitter and on Facebook because, you know, this book has a lot of formulas which actually made me understand what a second squared actually means, and then someone explained to me that it's basically meters per second per second, so kind of makes sense that way. And they also show all the uniforms, and they have, like, full instructions on what to do, and they have exact formulas on what chemical weapons can do to you and what radiation does to you and how to protect you from all these things. Really nice illustrations too, such as extracting victims from rubble, where you can see a clear nice little victim who's like almost dead. It's just one of those super bizarre books and I hope that we'll make a great episode about that. I'm gonna leave the book that I'm gonna be using very soon, by the way, for Lost, because super cool one, but um, the next one that uh, also I acquired recently uh, was from my manager, Calvis, Calvis Krustinch. His dad, who had previously written a book about the industrial history of Latvia and the Baltic States, he's now written another book called The Maritime Shipping in Latvia. He, it's just published. It's all about the maritime things in both Latvia, uh, when it was independent, and under the Soviet Union, and also what happened to the people who were involved in shipping. And this also will tie into the future stuff, and I'm really happy about this one. I'm not sure if it exists in English, but I have like a full, nice little history of shipping, and its history 
throughout all the region, which is great and written by my manager Calvis's dad, and I have a nice little signed copy. If any one of you wanna wanna read it after I'm done with this, um, I might send a copy for you as well. And then, then I have a really interesting book, which is called, um, well, it's a massive, actually historical, written by a doctor of history, Uldis Neiburgs, which is called Between Imminent Danger and Distant Hope, Latvia's Resistance Movement and Western Allies from 1941 to 1945. And they have a summary in English too, it's a, it's a book in Latvian. I'll just read a bit from the summary so that you'll understand why it is super important in my Stalin series. Because it shows that, you know, we had our own resistance movement who fought both the Nazis and the Soviets. And from the summary, quote, <clears throat> The monograph between imminent danger and distant hope, Latvia's resistance movement and Western allies, 1941 to 1945, is devoted to a topic lacking in detailed and comprehensive research as of yet. It details with wartime contact and cooperation of the national resistance movement in Latvia during the Nazi occupation, Latvian diplomats in the West, and foreign and military intelligence services of the Western allies. These three groups are researched in context to perceive the interrelation and interaction among them. Due to the illegal character of the resistance movement's activities, the secretive nature of foreign intelligence services and other factors, research of these subjects is especially complex and time-consuming. During World War II, Latvia lost its national independence and underwent the succession of Soviet-Nazi-Soviet occupations. Latvia's occupation by the Soviet Union on 17th of June 1940 by the means of military threat and its subsequent annexation and incorporation to the USSR was an unlawful act of aggression that blatantly violated the international law. From the legal point of view, the same can be said about the change of military regimes in June-July 1941 when, after the outbreak of the German-USSR war, known as the Great War of Fatherland of the Soviet Union, the territory of Latvia was subjugated to nationalist socialist Germany. It regarded Latvia not as a liberated independent state, but rather as an occupied territory of the Soviet Union. From the perspective of the state and international law, both the government of the Latvian SSR, which evacuated to the USSR during the war, and the Latvian self-administration of the land, which was formed under the Nazi occupation, both of these things were unlawful. In spite of the loss of its factual sovereignty, Latvia continued to exist de jure as a subject of the international law during the war. It was manifested also in the attitude of the Western Allied powers, the USA and the Great Britain, who fought against the Axis states. They regarded the subjugation of the Baltic states to the USSR and later to Germany as unlawful and invalid. The only legal representatives of the Republic of Latvia were the holders of potential powers, Carlos Zarinch, the ambassador in London, and the alternate plenipotentiary Alfred Bielman is the Latvian ambassador in Washington, D.C. Their status, fully or with some reservations, was recognized also by the governments of their countries of residence, Great Britain and the USA. After the German invasion of the Soviet Union and Japan's attack on the USA in 1941, Great Britain and USA became the allies of the Soviet Union against the National Socialist Germany. In the subsequent course of the war, they had to give priority to the considerations of realpolitik over ethical principles. Consequently, they were forced to take into account the geopolitical interests and military contributions of the Soviet Union in the war against Nazism. Although the Baltic diplomats abroad wanted to facilitate the victory of the Western democracies in the war, their efforts to join officially the Atlantic Atlantic Charter, signed on 14th of August 1941, and the United Nations Declaration, adopted on the 4th of January 1942, were rejected. 
In the situation when the territory of Latvia was in the hands of one occupant, the uh, Nazi Germany, with the threat of yet another Soviet occupation looming, the Latvian people's aspirations for self-determination and desire for the recovery of the national dependence were represented by the National Resistance Movement, assuming various organized and spontaneous forms. This book is a heavy one. This book shows how, well, the Allies did not really care about us. Because this book ties into the nice little myth that Soviets were the good guys of the World War II. Yeah, that's if you only count that the World War II started for the Soviets at the time when Nazis attacked them, and you ignore... Well, for example, I don't know, I don't know how uh, only the Nazis get the blame in the eyes of most Western historians. Well, that has changed very, very lately with the fact that, you know, the Nazi-Soviet division of Poland, where the Soviets took the most part of Poland under them, and then they held a huge military parade together. Yeah, that's not World War II, and the Soviets were not totally aggressors there. And uh, the Winter War, where after a long and horrific fights, because, well, the Finnish people provided, like, a, a lot of preparation, and they stood vigilantly against the Soviet aggressors, like, the Soviets attacked the Finland in 1939, and the Winter, after invading Poland together with the Nazis, that's not World War II. Annexation of the Baltic States... Not World War II. Soviet annexation of Bessarabia area from Romania. Not World War II, definitely. Soviet Union enters the World War II in 1941 only when the Nazis attack the Soviet Union because the Nazis have to be the only villains of the story because that makes the Western countries look really, really good and fighting for the good side on the paper, ignoring the fact that tens of millions of people were conquered and annexed by the Soviet Union. That does not count as being a part of the World War II even though that started over the Nazi invasion of Poland. No one talks about the Soviet invasion of Poland. No one talks about the fact that they started the Winter War, the Romanian campaigns, and annexation of the Baltic Republics, and anything. Nope, that does not count. The Soviets were totally the good guys. I mean, sure, they uh, had to prioritize, and there was a real politic move, and this might offend some of you, but this sheer blatant idea that uh, the Soviets were among the good guys, somehow? That Stalin was one of the good people, even though he had his own attack prepared? Well, he literally trained up Nazi tank officers, and that they were allies? And as I've mentioned in my episode about the 38th Congress, that, uh, they were really friendly? I mean, this book is all about the fact that how our resistance movement here in Latvia, and this also ties in with resistance movements in Estonia and Lithuania, how we were actually believing at the time that the Western allies, the UK and the United States, would stand up for their ideals, you know, liberty and freedom and, you know, all this useless crap that they had promised and that they said they stand for, which they totally didn't. That made my people basically to choose between one invader and the other one. And the fact that, well, when I tell some folks that, yes, there were people fighting on the Nazi side of the war because their families were brutally murdered by Stalin, and, you know, I have to remind you here that I'm half Jewish, 
because, well, one half of my family fought for the Red Army and the other one fought for the Nazis because we had no choice and it was a massive, terrible choice. You had to basically fight for the occupational regime who wanted to annex and kill you, well, as fast as you could and you had to choose between a rock and a hard place. And at the same time, there were this resistance movement who actually wanted to bring back democracy in Latvia, who really counted on the fact that, oh my god, the Western allies would never sell us out to the Soviets after all they had promised this, we had agreements signed and shit. Yeah, you know, that is a nice little reason why we all are actually paying our 2% into the NATO. That is a reason why we take NATO very seriously. But we'll look at it with very skeptical eyes, because there is a feeling that the West had betrayed our countries before, and that they'll do so again, because not like anyone cares. And when you speak about World War II, if you look at the fact that what the Western allies actually did after the Poland was invaded, well, uh, you have to understand that it's called the Quiet War, for a good reason, because the French were like, we're totally gonna go to war, and then do nothing. Some minor operations easily pushed back, and it's like, yeah, yeah, Poland, whatever. The kind of this mistrust still exists, and we want to trust. We want to get back to the good sides, we want to do all the nice things, but... Um, it's a very different story here, and whenever I see sort of a movie or, or, or a story somewhere stating that the United States saved Europe from Nazism, and we saved the world, and, and it's, it's all bullshit. It's just bullshit. What you really did, what the United States did, was by the landing of Normandy, they stopped the Soviet tank armies, because they were technically allies, from running over and making Soviet socialist republics existing from here to the shores of the Atlantic, including Spain and Portugal. That's what you stopped. Nazis were pretty much done by that point, Soviet Union was just rolled over them anyways. You stopped the Soviets from conquering all of Europe. That's what you did, even though the Soviets were your own allies. That's what you get credit for, in my eyes at least. And it's a complex scenario, and uh, someone's gonna post this somewhere else and saying, Oh my god, he's defending the Nazis! Not really. No, I'm not defending Nazis in any fucking way or form. Nazis are disgusting piles of human garbage. But what do you do when a monster kills all of your family, then another monster comes in, and you don't know he's a monster, and he's telling you, he's lying to you, that, oh no, you'll get your own state eventually, just help us fight Bolshevism. Do you not volunteer? Well, a lot of people did. And when they did, when they did, and went to the front lines and fought against the Bolsheviks, which had came into our country first, and uh, killed a lot of people, after that, after that, yeah, when all the able-bodied men are out of the country and no one knows what's going on because internet did not exist at that time, then they started killing off all your friends. The Jews, the Poles, the minorities, everyone you cared about. And in the last days of the war, the people still not surrendering in the Kurland pocket were not doing that because they were fanatical Nazis. They were doing that only for the reason so that as many people as possible could escape to the Western countries, like to Sweden, or Finland, or whatever. And then, the Swedes, after the war, gave out a lot of people who had escaped back to the Soviet Union, due to the Neutrality Act. That was a nice move. And that's a complex story, and yes, I'm quite much condemning the realpolitik actions, I understand them, but it doesn't make me feel nice about them. All I'm just saying is, 
well, whenever I hear about the greatest generation and saving Europe in the United States media, and when uh, games like Wolfenstein get released, where, well, all the Nazis are like, you know, everyone's the good guy, just you killed the Nazis, and then Soviets also get portrayed as the good guys. Yeah, fuck that noise. It didn't go like that over here. Instead, we had tragic stories of family member fighting against another family member because they were conscripted or volunteered because of ideological reasons. We have stories about no one being spared from either government. No one ever coming out of the war unscathed. Families destroyed. Generations lost. Our population is still dwindling because the generations after the war, it's just that 40 fucking percent of Latvia died. 40% of my country died out. Same with Estonia, same with Lithuania. We were depopulated to a crazy extent. We still haven't recovered. Our population numbers are still in the negative. And then, then when I hear in the Western media how the United States saved Europe, I'm sorry, I feel disgusted. And I don't mean, of I don't mean no offense to your ancestors, because I truly do believe that they firmly believe they were doing the right thing and that we were just left left out there for the dogs because, well, nothing was to be done. However, this is my show and I get to tell you the nasty parts of the realpolitik of the era. And sometimes you have to admit that indeed the greatest generation of the United States also acted upon the state propaganda and realpolitik and all that they did was allied with one evil motherfucker to fight off another evil motherfucker. And that's about it. Not like they actually saved Europe. Soviets really would have just stomped the Nazis over, like thrice over. But this is a personal point of mine, and this is why the Stalin series takes so long. It's just a very painful story for me personally, because my family has suffered from both sides as, well... Most families in Latvia. This is not an easy subject. Well, I want to talk to you about the books, but I got a bit carried away. Anyway, this is coming in the selling cities too, because World War II is going to be probably the darkest and most evil subject I touch upon in my life. We still live under the scars of this thing, but... Uh, but I guess I have to move on to another book. Which sort of still ties into this World War II subject and the massive depression of all these things. Hey guys, Annette here. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Don't worry, I will be there to do the editing so you will get all the episodes that Christophs has promised you. As always, a big thank you to all of you who are supporting us on Patreon. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to figure out how you too can support the show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border and all of the collaborations that the show is doing, as well as the injuries that Christops keeps getting, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's it for now. Thank you and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! And another book that uh, I have in my hands, which also considers World War II, is called Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, American Airmen Behind the Soviet Lines and the Collapse of the Grand Alliance, by Sergei Plochy. It must be called Sergei Plochy, because 
Plahoy or something, Sergei the Bad or whatever, because the you know, anglicizations of Soviet names are sometimes weird. And this is an interesting book. I was sent this one uh, for a review, and I've I've been sent another one lately. Uh, but the thing is that it's I need to go through customs to get these books, and it's hard for this. And I was sent this book as a means of, um, you know, reviewing them after I went to Harvard, and that was, like, bizarre. And Serhii Plochi is uh, Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, professor of history and director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. And he's won a bunch of prizes, and I'm just gonna read you what the book is about, because uh, I haven't read it yet, I, I have all these other books to read. But I'm supposed to make a review on this book, which is gonna arrive way too late. So the best I can do is make sure that at least that I have this one and that I'm working on it because. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh boy, World War II is the biggest kind of stopping point of what I can do. It's just so weird and so heavy for me. But this book, basically, the summary reads, quote, when the idea of placing American air bases on Soviet territory was broached at the summit of the Big Three, Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, convened in Tehran in November 1943, Stalin balked. Though aligned with the West in the fight against Nazis and pushing hard for the British and Americans to establish a second front, Stalin was suspicious to the point of paranoia of Westerners, whom he used as spies and counter-revolutionaries. Note from myself, totally true. Despite this, and believing that they could break through the facade of Soviet intransigence, this is the first time I read this word, intransigence. I actually don't know what that means. I have to Google this one up. Intransigence. Does that mean, like, not caring or, or just ignoring things? Intransigence. Intransigence? Yeah, that's a word that I don't know yet. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I'm 30 now, I've been running a successful podcast for more than three years, I still don't know some words in English. I'm stupid. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> Despite this and believing that they could break through the facade of Soviet intransigence and strengthen the Grand Alliance, Western strategists and diplomats continued to push the idea. Putting American planes and soldiers into the Soviet Union would create a second air front permitting more effective bombing operations than those being conducted from Great Britain and Italy. 
In the end, Stalin relented, and three United States strategic air force bases were founded in the Poltava region of what is today Ukraine in April 1944. B-17 flying fortresses were flown from bases in Italy. Bombing operations codenamed Baseball and then Frantic were initiated. As Plochis, like I said his surname in Russian literally means the bad guy, utterly immersive and original book reveals what happened on these American airbases mirrored the fate of the Grand Alliance itself. While both sides were fighting for Germany's unconditional surrender, Red Army counterintelligence and Soviet secret policemen watched over the Americans, shadowing every move and eventually trying to prevent fraternization between airmen and local women. Fights broke out. After an air raid by the Germans, so catastrophic that one distraught American compared it to Pearl Harbor, exposed the limitations of Soviet air defenses, relations soured and the operations went south. The bases were paired back and marginalized, and those who remained behind until the war's end felt forgotten. Drawing on previously inaccessible KGB archives, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front offers a fuller account than any to date of the airbases and in the process gives a new account of the Grand Alliance and its eventual disintegration as presaged by the fissures that first appeared in Poltava. This is not diplomatic history on some grand scale, but a forensically detailed and fascinating reenactment of the first and only time American and Soviet soldiers fought side by side in World War II. Oh boy, this contained a lot of smart words. Like, a lot of smart words that uh, I'm gonna have to spend some time um, probably understanding myself. But that's a good book, and I hope that this still brings more understanding to my World War II series, because as you just heard, uh, yeah, I have some... Uh, Probably divergent, probably not so happy and not so common opinions about the Great War. You know, the Second Great War, that is. And the final book that I want to bring your attention to, this is gonna... I'm gonna make a whole episode about this at first, because this is great. This is by Yuris Divitirs. It's in Latvian. It's called The Laboratory of Intelligence. The thing is that it's in Latvian, and I just got it, but it's, it's so amazing, because it concerns a fate of a Latvian double agent who worked both for Western intelligence agencies, namely that of the German Federative Republic and the Soviet Union at the time, and he justifies his things that the fact that he just wanted to do good to Latvians, and it's all about a cruise ship. It's all about how he managed to get a job on a cruise ship and work there. It's, it contains Riga Montreal trip of his on this massive cruise ship in 1969. He was there as a double agent from both sides, and it has a story of his and his personality and everything, and how he got on the ship and what he did there, and how all this ship was basically a massive, massive front for basically uh, surveillance and stuff. And, well, I'm sorry, reminder about my leg and me being quite angry. Basically, it's about the cruise ship Alexander Pushkin, which was kind of built for Soviet Union's Baltic Shipping Company. I'm using Wikipedia now, okay? Sorry, guys, but you probably won't find it if you just search Alexander Pushkin. Right now, it's called MS Marco Polo. Right now, it's owned by the Global Maritime Group under the UK-based Cruise and Maritime Voyages. And yeah, I'm using Wikipedia article because even though this information is in the book in Latvian, he provides more detail, which I'm going to reveal to you in a future episode from his own personal story, and there's nice little advertising... This is coming soon, guys. Don't worry about it. Soviet advertising of their cruise ships is amazing. But um, it's just that it's easier to take some nice little descriptions of the boat itself 
from Wikipedia because it's in English, unlike, you know, having to do my own translations while my leg can barely move and I'm literally screaming internally from pain. But basically, Alexander Pushkin entered service in 1965 with the Baltic Shipping Company, and this is from Wikipedia. This is the official recognized data of everything. And yeah, I have to mention that this ship was unusual because it could also carry military equipment after the purchase as it became Marco Polo, and I'm not going to get into detail with that. Everyone was surprised that the elevators were bigger, the cargo holds were huge, and uh, yeah, it was built to contain tanks too, just for fun. But as Wikipedia states us, Alexander Pushkin entered service in 1965 with the Baltic Shipping Company. One of the three principal Soviet passenger shipping companies, the other two being the Black Sea Shipping Company and the Far East Shipping Company. Reports about her service in the Soviet fleet are fragmentary and conflicting, which is why I'm really glad to have this book. Most sources state she was used to inaugurate the Baltic Shipping Company's regular transatlantic service between Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and Leningrad, and later on used for cruising. And other sources, according to Wikipedia again, give a more detailed but somewhat conflicting account. And there is a book by Philip Dawson called The Liner, Retrospective and Reconnaissance, and it gives the full route as Leningrad, Helsinki, Copenhagen, London, Quebec City, Montreal, in addition to which the ship was used for cruising from Montreal to Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, the Bahamas, and Cuba during the summer months. And according to that book, the ship just carried just 36 passengers on the first translated crossing, according to this one it was 87, but it was weird. And Wikipedia articles are just bizarre and it's just confusing because according to philip dawson alexander pushkin entered transatlantic service in 1980 bearing the legend official 22nd olympics carrier while that is a bit of a lie because this ship traveled to montreal at least on 69 and it had entered service as a cruise ship in 1965 basically this ship was a soviet cruise ship where all the spying happened. This is where people spied on each other. This is where all the spies went to, because Soviets really blustered the ship to show the glory of the communist nation to everyone else. And uh, from my book that I have here, which is all about this, well, this is called The Intelligence Laboratory, obviously about the ship, and it's, it contains some great, great studies, which I'm going to translate to in the future, but it contains nice little pictures about, like, for example, Soviet ad papers and uh, all this thing. And I I'm going to read from these because like, come on in. The water is superb. The main swimming pool is heated and surprisingly large. Eight feet at the deep end. After your dip, enjoy a long, cool drink. There's a bar right near the pool and relax on the sun deck. Children won't disturb you. They have their own padding pool in the after deck where they can splash anyway all day. Your time's your own. Take your pick, there's plenty to do. Spend a quiet hour in the games room on our energetic one in the gymnasium. Visit the library with its good selection of English language books or the writing room to scribble your own wish you were here cards. Shave, sir? There's a barber's shop, of course. And ladies can pamper themselves with a visit to the beauty parlor as often as they like. The day hardly seems long enough on Alexander Pushkin. What to do when the sun goes down? The nightlife's lively on board ship. Every evening there's dancing in one of the lounges to a first-class band. The cinema shows films every day, and at least twice during the round voyage, you'll be able to watch our exciting Russian cabaret in the music saloon. 
all crew, the singers and dancers are in fact crew members, but for entertainment value and sheer exuberance, they're better trained than many professionals. Uh, actually, they were completely and totally professionals, but, you know, they won't mention that on the ads. Exploring the port's a call. We don't want you to fall into any tourist traps. This is why there's special excursion agent on the board, Alexander Pushkin. His job is to help you organize your trip ashore, visiting the places of special interest. Make the most of his services before you use your land legs. Not to mention the fact that this agent was definitely not from the KGB and would not do his secret operations and would not try to vet you in his own operations. That's addition by me, but if, you, if you've listened to my interest operation, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's just amazing how you have this special nice comrade dude and he's gonna help you have fun on the boat and abroad. Please use his special offers and follow him. Do what he tells you. He carries a Mosin Nagant pistol and an ice pick. If you do not like the ice pick, well then, you will be invited to a special room where complaints of yours will be listened to and soon will stop. Obviously. It's just fun like that. And it continues. I mean, I have to read all this. Room to spread yourself. Never any other crowding on Alexander Pushkin. Like, seriously, every time they, they write Alexander Pushkin, it's all caps. There are over more than 550 passengers, even though it can hold about a thousand, because the rest are marines. Yeah, uh, tanks and marines on the boat. With three decks for sunbathing and 268 spacious and comfortable cabins, that means literally acres in which to spread yourselves. Our cabins are rather special. Not just modern and comfortable, they are all outside cabins with their own portholes. Alexander Pushkin is one of the very few liners to have this. And there are four luxury suits under the bridge with giant windows overlooking the bows. No cabin will have more than two passengers unless you wish otherwise. For example, if you want to bring children or share with your friends. Incidentally, this would mean an even lower fare. Duty-free drinks in five bars. Ever tried real Russian vodka or Caucasian lager? You'll find everything, including your usual, in the five well-stocked bars. Not only is everything at uh, duty-free prices, for example, a oh, one-eight of dollars? What the fuck's one-eight dollars? It says literally one slash eight D for a large gin, and I have no clue what that means. I mean, what's a one-eighth of a dollar? I presume that's a dollar, but I'm not exactly sure. There are no short about licensing hours either. Caviar on the menu. To eat on board, Alexander Pushkin is to eat in style. We serve caviar during every cruise, along with many other Russian delicacies. Herring butter, for instance, and smoked sturgeon, but there are always English dishes to choose from as well. The cuisine on board the Alexander Pushkin is both lavish and delicious. The sparkling sea air should give you the appetite to do it justice. And all this at the time when people were still standing in lines for their own food. Alexander Pushkin was an amazing boat. And Yuris Dimitris really gives you the whole story of all the intelligence stuff and all the hidden shit that happened behind the scenes. And I'm gonna make sure that you get a full episode on this in February, because that's the first book I'm gonna read, which is why I was also so excited about the shipping history of that. So now you have my nice little five books that I'm having... I have to read through all of these through the next month. And I'll also be doing a nice little episode where uh, 
with another podcast called Literal Gamer, a podcast about, like, uh, intelligent gaming, where I'm going to be talking about Disco Elysium and its connections with the Soviet mindset and everything. It's going to be pretty great, I hope. And we're going to try our best. Uh, for now, I'm going to try my leg healed, and uh, next episode, well, if Anata can edit that, you're going to get something serious. And I hope my Latvian podcast picks up, because, oh my god, I, they don't pay me at all, and, and I'm in pain, and that's pretty bad. But hey, hey, now you know what's going on, and I, uh, well, sorry for this book episode, but at least you know what I'm doing. And uh, stay away from those surlets, guys. Really, those they, they hurt like a bitch if you if you just, just stumble on them, it's pretty bad. Anyway, the Sudanya Tavarishi, and uh, see you next time, and, well, I guess, have a nice end of the January. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.